ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. We're back for 2024. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, major flooding hits central Victoria. Some residents told it's too late to leave. Also, fertility treatment services under pressure with a national shortage of sperm and eggs. Is it time to start paying people for their donation? And recipes from around the world. Migrant women find a sense of belonging with a new cookbook. I did our traditional food called manti. When guests are coming to our home, we usually do this. Everyone will cook their speciality in their culture with a very personal story about their family. It's been another day of wild weather for Victorians with record rainfalls, flash flooding and evacuations in parts of the state. Three months of rain hit the central Victorian town of Heathcote in just 24 hours, while further east parts of Seymour and Yea are under evacuation orders this evening. The State Emergency Service is preparing for more flood rescues and authorities say it's still not clear what damage has been done to property. Luke Sidham Dundon reports. Terry McDonald woke to the sound of water this morning and when she walked outside her home in Sugarloaf Creek in central Victoria, she was greeted with an unusual sight. All the water's come down off the hills and it's come straight through our property. Thankfully our house is raised slightly so the water was able to go underneath. Anything low-lying pretty much has just, you know, copped it this morning. But um, no, walking out this morning and finding the yard was <laughs> all underwater again, um, which is kind of what happened last in 22. Had flashbacks, put it that way. With her house relatively safe, albeit with her yard and shed flooded, Terry McDonald's concern lies elsewhere. For the last 15 months, she and her companions at the Seymour Art Society have been waiting for its public gallery to reopen. It was forced to close after being wrecked by another devastating flood just over a year ago. I literally got an email this morning to say we can get back in. And then now we're looking at potentially it's smack bang in the middle of an evacuation zone um, is potentially, you know, flooding. So I'm hoping it's just local flooding and I'm hoping it's not reaching the gallery because we, we just, yeah, <laughs> that would be too much after, you know, a year and a bit of, of waiting to get back in. <laughs> oh, sorry. Can you walk me through what happened, though, in 2022 with the gallery? I mean, what, what was the extent of the damage? Uh, the water was actually, it inundated the gallery quite badly. It's been over a year of repairs and restoration and things like that. There was artworks that we lost. There was just, yeah, it was just, you know, pretty awful. It's a similar story for residents across Victoria today. Kirsten Autumn lives 50 kilometres east of Seymour in Heathcote. The bottom of our street is flooded and, yeah, I'm looking at about 20 metres or so of, uh, of water where there's not supposed to be any water. So the access between Heathcote to Bendigo is um, blocked by the flood water. We know that some of those houses that were impacted back in October have been impacted again. We've, we've got friends who are in that situation and all those homes that have been impacted by the water again, I, I can't imagine what they're feeling right now. That must be terrible. In the space of just 24 hours, Heathcote received 184 millimetres. It's the most it's had in a single day since records began 120 years ago. 
Reedsdale got 117mm, also setting a new record, while Bendigo received 92 The Bureau of Meteorology's Michael Efron says a tropical air mass is causing the rain in central and eastern parts of Victoria, but it should clear up throughout the evening. The good news is that through the rest of this afternoon and into the evening, we are going to see that rain contracting to the east of the state and then clearing into the early hours of Tuesday. And so for Tuesday and pretty much the rest of the week, we'll just see some isolated shower and thunderstorm activity. So certainly not looking at uh, the heavy rainfall that we have seen over the last couple of days. But the threat isn't over. While the skies are set to clear, the rivers could continue to rise. The focus will shift in the next few hours from being on flash flooding to riverine flooding. Victorian SES Chief Officer Tim Weebush says volunteers have already responded to more than 1,200 requests for assistance and he's got a message for anyone not taking the situation seriously. Unfortunately, 38 of those have related to flood rescues and in the majority of cases it's people taking their lives in their own hands and attempting to drive through flash flood waters. Evacuation orders have been issued for parts of the towns of Seymour and Yay, and attention is turning to the northern Victorian town of Rochester, where the Campaspe River is already at major flood level and could rise further. Back in Heathcote, Kirsten Autumn is hoping the waters will leave as quickly as they came. We were hoping for the best and expecting the worst. It went down quickly last time for us, so hopefully by the end of the day it'll go down, but I, I really don't know. Meanwhile, in southeast Queensland, where a powerful storm caused extensive damage two weeks ago, power has now been restored to all residents. More financial assistance has been made for people hit by that disaster, including a one-off $1,000 payment. At least 10 homes in southeast Queensland were completely destroyed and more than 550 are badly damaged. That report from Luke Siddham Dundon. Well, fertility treatment can be stressful enough as it is, but a national shortage of egg and sperm donations is making the process even more difficult. It's causing delays and even leading people to seek fertility services overseas. But one potential solution, offering payment for donations, is a legal and ethical minefield, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. Here's the problem. In order to offer treatment, IVF and other fertility services need people to donate eggs and sperm. We've always been short of donors, especially egg donors, and it's also a problem because the demand for egg and sperm donation has increased dramatically. Dr Manuela Toledo is the medical director at TAS IVF and a fertility specialist at Melbourne IVF. The big reason is that we're all tending to have our families and our babies one to two decades later than our parents did. And because of that, we are seeing infertility, which is now on the rise. And the shortage has consequences for people undergoing fertility treatment. The main delays that we're seeing is if we're having a couple or a single person from a specific ethnic background that would like to use a a donor from a a similar cultural or ethnic background. We really don't have a lot of donors who are Middle Eastern background uh, and we also don't have many African donors. We're really trying to increase that diversity and so that recipients really have a, a choice. 
The decision to donate gametes, eggs or sperm, is a significant one. In Australia, donors must be registered and they can be contacted by the donor-conceived person once that person turns 18. Dr Toledo says the shortage of available gametes in Australia can sometimes turn people to fertility treatment overseas. There are some very good clinics over in the US that would have a very similar tracking system to us. But there are a lot of clinics overseas where the donors are completely anonymous and the donor-conceived child would not be able to access an overseas donor register. Dr Karen Hammerberg is a Senior Research Fellow at Monash University and a Senior Research Officer at the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. She's conducted research into the reasons why people don't donate. One really interesting one, I thought, was that a lot of people weren't aware that there was a need for egg and sperm donation. That would be a simple thing to fix, in my view, uh, by through public education. And there could be campaigns promoting the benefits to, to others of being an egg and sperm donor. And other reasons were that, you know, there was no compensation involved. And I think that probably would drive some people. Public awareness is one thing, but introducing payment to a system that up until now has been altruistic would be significant. You would want to have community consultation on, on that kind of question, but, but something that represents a fair kind of compensation for time and effort. In the case of women, it also is fair compensation for taking a medical risk because egg donation is not completely risk-free. Dr Hammerberg says it's important any payment would be small. She says a small amount of compensation would indicate the significance of the donation, but too much could lead to exploitation. Ross Hunter, a director of advocacy group Donor Conceived Australia, says any kind of financial payment could be risky. I'd be really concerned about incentivising payment for the donation of gametes because as soon as you determine a price when it comes to something as sensitive as human reproductive material or gametes, there's a tendency for that market mentality to translate into the whole conversation around what it means to be a parent or a donor. And I think that's really dangerous territory. Ross Hunter says financial compensation shouldn't be a motivator for people involved in the creation of a human life. We just see what a a dangerous precedent, a cautionary tale that the US is for us, where you have donors who have been financially incentivised and um, the whole recruitment, there's a lot of money that's put into advertising, particularly at colleges, this whole obsession, it's almost eugenic. He says the most important thing is that any donor is prepared to be contacted by the donor-conceived person at some point. Because, you know, 15 to 20 years later, there is going to be someone. Being open to that contact, I think, is really important. Ross Hunter from Donor Conceived Australia, ending that report by Bridget Fitzgerald. Overseas now and in Bangladesh, there are concerns the country is becoming a one-party state after the government's thumping re-election in a poll boycotted by the opposition. The Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, has secured a fourth consecutive term in power. Analysts say her government is transforming Bangladesh's economy but leading it down a dangerous political path. Jacqueline Breen has more. Outside a polling booth in Dhaka this weekend, a woman comments on how quiet things are 
on election day in one of the world's biggest democracies. I think the voter turnout is very low. Maybe it will increase as the day goes by. Casting her vote nearby, the Prime Minister shrugged off questions about the legitimacy of an election held with only one major party in the running. I have to prove credibility, right? To whom? A terrorist party, a terrorist organisation. The opposition Bangladesh National Party, or BNP, wanted the election to be run by a caretaker government, independent of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina and her party, the Awami League, which rejected the bid. No, I have my accountability to the people. Whether people accepted it or not, whether they have accepted this election or not, that is important. In the lead-up to the poll, the BNP opposition and its supporters took to the streets. At a rally in October, Human Rights Watch says an estimated 10,000 activists were arrested after clashes with police and at least 16 people were killed. The opposition urged supporters to boycott the vote and official figures put the turnout at 40%. But with 223 of the 300 seats in Parliament, Sheikh Hasina has been returned for an historic fourth term as Prime Minister. She is the longest-serving female uh, Prime Minister or head of state in the world at the moment. Dr Mubashar Hassan is a Bangladesh-born academic and social justice activist. He says the Prime Minister is a towering figure in Bangladesh, the daughter of the father of the nation, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, who led the country to independence from Pakistan. The problem is her elections are not being credible and independent observers and liberal democracies uh, do not find that the elections she held in 2014 and 2018 were credible. And similarly, the election that was held yesterday in Bangladesh was, it would be difficult to call it a credible election. I think it's very clear that Bangladesh appears to be headed towards uh, becoming a de facto one-party state. Sadanan Dumey is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He told the BBC that Sheikh Hasina is accused of anti-democratic conduct and credited with major economic reforms. The per capita income in Bangladesh has tripled in the past decade, a rate of growth faster than neighbouring India's. I think Sheikh Hasina and her supporters will take sort of heart from the fact that uh, many people in the neighbourhood, particularly the Indians and the Chinese, uh, will be quite pleased with the result because they see her more than anything else as a symbol of economic development and stability in a rough part of the world. But of course, in the West, uh, there are real concerns about the quality of Bangladeshi democracy and its decline on Sheikh Hasina's watch. There's been little international reaction to the election so far. The opposition and some in civil society in Bangladesh are calling for democratic countries to raise concerns. Dr Mubashar Hassan again. There is no other way to... Other, other conclusion one could derive from, from this result. It is an election that is legitimizing one party state in the country. That means there would be less and less checks and balances within the state institution. And the ruling party and the prime minister is about to hold an absolute power. And that is not, um, that is a bit frightening for individuals who act on de- for democracy and freedom. 
Bangladesh-born academic and social justice activist Dr Mubasha Hassan. Jacqueline Breen with that report. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, Australians take home statuettes at the revamped Golden Globe Awards. With just six months to go before the Paris Olympics, the Matildas have been dealt a huge blow, with Captain Sam Kerr badly rupturing a ligament in her knee. It's the latest in a string of injuries to plague the soccer star, who had to sit out the first few games of the Home World Cup last year. But experts say while Kerr will be missed on the field, she still has an important part to play as the team tries to qualify for the games. This report from Elizabeth Cramsey. Just months ago, Sam Kerr scored what some described as the best goal of the World Cup in the semi-final against England. What a strike! What a goal from Sam Kerr! But as the Matildas gear up for their next Olympic qualifier against Uzbekistan next month, they'll be without their fearless leader. The superstar striker ruptured her anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL, on a training camp in Morocco this week with her English club Chelsea. Sam Kerr is no stranger to injury, missing the first few games of the Home World Cup with a calf problem. Her impact on Australian football illustrated through the crowd's reaction when she finally got back on the pitch. Well, what roof there is at Stadium Australia lifted fully off because here, making her bow in the World Cup... It's Australia's captain. Samantha Lewis is a women's football journalist for ABC Sport. She says it's been a rocky period for the star. Sam Kerr, I think it's a really pivotal time in her career. You know, she has been struggling with injuries over the past sort of six to eight months. And we saw, of course, one of those take her out of the start of the Women's World Cup with that calf injury that made headlines around the world. Um, But around that, she's also been struggling with a couple of niggles uh, with Chelsea FC, her club. She's missed a couple of international windows with the Matildas because they don't want her to be travelling or to be playing on on small injuries that she's trying to uh, get better. The Paris Olympics are only six months away and generally an ACL injury would require a minimum of nine months rehabilitation. So does this mean Kerr is officially ruled out of the Games? If anyone was to really commit to trying to recover quickly in time for a major tournament, it it would be her. But unfortunately, as much as she can try and and will herself to recovery, her body has other ideas. And we've seen in the past uh, where she's sustained major injuries uh, in the lead up to big tournaments that She has worked really hard to try and rehabilitate. Sometimes she's missed them just by virtue of the luck of the timing. Sometimes she's made them. Um, But with the Olympics, it really is just a couple months too short. She's only 30 years old, but Sam Kerr has squeezed a great deal into her life. It's her 15th year on the national squad and her fifth with Chelsea after playing in the United States. Samantha Lewis says she still has some fuel left in the tank. 2025 is a down year in the sense that there's no major tournaments happening throughout that year. It's just going to be club football. But then we've got the next Asian Cup and the next Women's World Cup the following two years after that. So 
Given Sam Kerr is now in her early 30s, this is probably the last World Cup cycle that she can be part of when she's at the peak of her powers. And I don't know about you, but I think she's probably got some revenge up her sleeve after missing her home World Cup. I think she'd want to make a real crack at the next one. And perhaps Kerr's injury in the World Cup was a blessing in disguise for the team as a whole. It allowed not just the Australian public, but it also allowed the Matildas players themselves to realise that they are more than just Sam Kerr. You know, she's the greatest goal scorer currently in the game. Of course, you would want to be able to rely on her as much as possible. But I think what the Women's World Cup showed was actually we do have a team who is capable of going far in major tournaments without Sam Kerr. Sam Kerr joins a long list of women to suffer such an injury. Moya Dodd's ACL ended her career in 1995 and the former Matilda's vice-captain says the players have gruelling schedules. The fact that a player is serving in multiple different competitions run by multiple different entities means that their match schedule, their fixture list, is really, well, I think there's room for improving the coordination of the match calendar, shall we say. She says the discussion needs to start with FIFA, who set the match calendar. There is some consultation. I think most of the clubs and leagues would would say that they would like a lot more say in things. And, of course, you also have confederations who set their own calendars, typically around the FIFA calendar. But everybody is, is gobbling up the dates on the calendar before the National Leagues get to fit all their games around it. The Matildas will play against Uzbekistan on February 24. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting. Well, after surviving its longest writers and actors strike, Hollywood has been celebrating its top achievers at the Golden Globe Awards today. Oppenheimer, a movie about the development of the atomic bomb, was the big winner, while the family drama Succession did well in the TV categories. And as Isabel Masali reports, a few Australians took home awards at the revamped event. And the Golden Globe goes to Barbie. 2023 was the year of Barbenheimer, a battle between the Barbie movie and a much darker film, Oppenheimer. Australian actress and producer Margot Robbie took to the stage, thanking the Golden Globes for creating a new category, the box office achievement. Thank you. We would like to dedicate this to every single person on the planet who dressed up and went to the greatest place on earth, the movie theatres. Thank you, and uh, thank you to everybody, all the Barbies and Kens in front of and behind the screen. It was the greatest, most joyful show of craftsmanship and passion I've ever seen. But Oppenheimer stole the show. The Christopher Nolan film won five awards, including Best Picture. Succession won the most awards in the TV categories, including Best Actress in a Drama Series. That went to Australian Sarah Snook. After the presenters had just joked, they couldn't wait to hear what accent will accept the award. This show has it, um, changed my life. Um, and everybody in it was amazing. The cast, the crew were fantastic. This was a team effort. It was always a team, and that was what made the show amazing, I think, to be a part of. Australian actor Elizabeth Debecki also won for her performance in The Crown. Sarah Ward is the Australian-based critic for Screen International and Concrete Playground. She describes this year's ceremony and the host, Joe Coy, as a rushed mess. 
But turning to the awards, she says Australia had a pretty impressive night. We weren't snowed under with Australian nominations this year. You know, Margot Robbie was obviously nominated in the acting category, didn't win there. Um, we also had in the screenplay category um, Tony McNamara, um, who nominated for writing Poor Things, didn't um, didn't win there. But in general, you know, three fairly major awards is a really great showing for Australia. Sarah Ward says this year saw leaps and bounds in the recognition of non-English films in broader categories, but otherwise there weren't too many surprises. This is definitely a year where kind of all of the usual suspects did take out the awards, but it is a very unusual year. I can't remember even before the pandemic, a year where we had two huge movies, you know, in Barbie and Oppenheimer, that almost everybody saw, that everyone was talking about, that were both excellent and that coined this whole Barbenheimer phenomenon and that then are dominating the awards as well. So it does mean that there are some smaller films that, you know, got pushed out. This year's event was also the first under new management. Nadine Whitney says it boosted the diversity of critics and hoped to restore credibility. For years, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has been copping backlash because they were, you know, not the most ethical organisation in the world. Um, and so the Golden Globes changed ownership, completely changed how the awards were dealt with. Nobody was allowed to have any form of conflict of interest. Nadine Whitney is the co-chair of the Australian Film Critics Association and was a voting member for the film categories this year. She describes it as an intense role, which saw her watch 400 films from across the world. She believes Oppenheimer was always going to be a front-runner, but it's clear the changes have had an impact. When you've got a gay love story that is a ghost story, like all of us strangers getting a nomination, when you've got um, Scorsese's incredible piece of work about you know, the destruction of an entire people being recognised, not just because it's Scorsese, but because it is actually about something important in American history being recognised. Among those notable achievements was Lily Gladstone, becoming the first Indigenous woman to win her category for her role in Killers of the Flower Moon. Isabel Masali reporting. For people starting a new life in Australia, making connections can be difficult. A program run by the Red Cross in Tasmania is trying to bridge that gap by arranging group activities for socially isolated migrant women. This report from Alexandra Humphreys. It's meditation day at the Connected Women Tasmania program in Moona, in Hobart's northern suburbs. It's just one of the activities the group's done together in the past few months. They've also enjoyed dancing, cooking, makeup, and art sessions. Chu is the group's coordinator. The most recent thing is uh, we had an excursion to Signet just two weeks ago. Uh, during winter, we went to TMAC, uh, so the children can also join the mothers. So that's the local museum? Yes, correct. Um, that's a local museum. It's a, probably the first time all the children would see the Tasmanian devil and learn how they, uh, their natural habitat. The women in the group have migrated from about 30 different nations. Chu has moved here from Vietnam. It is to support women from migrant and refugees background and their families 
to help find their feet and belonging, develop the social belonging into Tasmania. Um, it's a safe place for everyone to come and ask questions, volunteer, or like just enjoy a new life here. It helps me a lot. Cholpon migrated from Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia last year. This uh, group, um, since I arrived new uh, to Australia, uh, by joining this group I met uh, a lot of friends. So uh, many different uh, women uh, from different countries, uh, we are uh, meeting in this place and we are sharing our experience. Um, uh, through this group I found um, connection contacts and this group helps me uh, to settle in Australia and um, be um, friends. Now the groups joined forces to launch a cookbook, bringing together recipes from their different cultures. I do have a recipe in cookbook. I did um, our traditional food called manti. Um, manti is our um, like a traditional um, main uh, food where we are all coming together and um, yeah, when guests are coming to our home we usually do this. Cooking together offers the women an opportunity to share memories, as the group's coordinator Chu explains. Everyone will cook their speciality in their culture, um, explaining with the, um, the stories why do they choose this recipe and usually it comes in with a very personal story about their family and um, where they come from. See, this is the, uh, an original poncho. Now, ponchos are very popular now, but this is original from the south of Chile. 82-year-old Isabel migrated to Tasmania from Chile in South America. She's brought along items of traditional dress for the cookbook launch. She's enjoyed the process of putting the book together. Oh yes, a very good experience. Yes, and we uh, we get to know all the other um, the other cultures, you know. But although we have plenty now, but it's always something new. So tell me about the recipe you have in there. It's this is something that you can make at home easily and tasty. You have tomatoes, onions, parsley, and a bit of chili. The chili sauce, so it goes with meat, fish, and soups. Each page part of a recipe for support. The cookbooks are available from Hobart's Red Cross. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. Thanks for joining me for our first PM of 2024. I'm Samantha Donovan. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage. Good night.